Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let me go ahead and read this for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together before we dive into God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for gathering us all here, uh, whether we are here as believers or uh, seekers. um, We thank you that you welcome us with open arms and and that you have something to say to all of us, uh, and that your word is sufficient for all of us. And so whether it is us getting to know you uh, more deeply for the first time, or getting to know you more deeply continually, uh, Lord, be with us, and speak to us your word, open our hearts to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're continuing in our series called uh, Worldview, God's Truth for All Time and All Places, and what we're addressing today is really uh, something we use all the time in all places, uh, and that is faith. Regardless of whether you are uh, a very, you, you perceive yourself as a very religious person or an irreligious person, uh, faith is really fundamental to your way of life. It's just a matter of whether you articulate it that way uh, or not. We have faith, for example, in our friends. Uh, that determines how we behave relationally with them. We have faith in just the regularity of nature that enables us to walk across a bridge and step into an elevator, do science. Uh, And these are properly called faith beliefs. These are not things that we go about proving every day, uh, but we assume by faith every day. Uh, David Hume was this atheist philosopher who tried to make this point And he wanted his fellow atheists to understand uh, that even a simple thought like the sun will rise tomorrow will uh, inevitably lead you to have faith, exercise faith. Uh, Because you can just as reasonably think the sun will uh, not rise tomorrow and you'll be just as rational in thinking that. Uh, If you set an alarm for tomorrow, therefore, or uh, you make an appointment to see somebody tomorrow, uh, or you set out your clothes that you want to wear tomorrow, uh, assuming the sun will rise tomorrow, uh, you are operating by faith. Faith is something we cannot live without. And in fact, you could even say, you could even say this, uh, to live is really to have faith. To have faith is really to live. Uh, Meaning we live only to the degree that we believe by faith that there is something worth living for and that we're headed somewhere meaningful. 
this is something that you know you you tend to kind of come across through writers, poets, and philosophers and thinkers. Uh, Tolstoy put it like this. He said. Lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder is the simplest of questions, and it is, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? And he says, these are questions without answers to which one cannot live. So what he means by that is, all that we're doing is really answering these questions at some soul level, internal level, every second of every hour of every day, and that is why we are alive. It's what enables us to live life. It's why we get out of bed. It's when we engage in these fundamental questions about life and existence by faith. Now, uh, there are those who are not, uh, they don't consider themselves religious, who might say, no, I don't really think about faith like this at all. I don't consider myself to be a person of faith. And I don't really even care about these metaphysical questions, so this doesn't really apply to me. But, but see, it does apply to you. <laughs> it really does. Uh, you may not have explicitly articulated your faith beliefs, but if you're still getting out of bed, uh, if you're still going to work, uh, if you're still planning for your future, uh, if you're still entering into relationships as if they are meaningful, and you take decent care of your body, and maybe you desire to get married and have children, you pursue love, in all of these things, you are taking on faith. You're believing by faith. You're headed somewhere meaningful. And therefore, in pursuit of these things, you believe you're pursuing meaning in life. At the core, you're still controlled by faith beliefs that are not explicitly uh, stated. Now, this is where the road begins to, to separate into two diverging paths where you can either have a very clearly stated meaningful destination in life and therefore live by a rational faith, or you really don't have a truly meaningful destination in life and your faith is therefore irrational or, you know, as uh, one writer called, absurd. There's a book titled, uh, What Does It All Mean? And it's written by this uh, thinker named Thomas Nagel, and he's not a Christian. And he said that no matter how confident you may feel about creating your own meaning in life and making a difference in this world, leaving it better than you found it, that meaningfulness is ultimately an illusion because in the end, nothing will make a difference because death ends all. Your greatest accomplishments, your great-grandchildren's greatest accomplishments will all be forgotten in the eventual death of everything and everyone. And that's just a very honest atheist thinker saying, if you're choosing to live meaningfully in the here and now, that's fine. But understand, that's choosing to live in an illusion, the illusion of meaning. And this is where the non-believer's path and the Christian path really begin to diverge because the Bible offers us a different path. And that is to live by a different kind of faith. It's what theologians call saving faith. Saving faith in Jesus, the Nazarene, and this faith is not absurd because the Bible says that this faith does lead you to a meaningful and definite destination. It leads you to God. Jesus is the way to God, and if you live by a saving faith in him, in Jesus, that's where you'll be headed, home to be with God. And what I want to tell you today is 
more about this saving faith from the Bible. And the big question, really, I like to ask all of us is, uh, do I have this saving faith? Do I have saving faith? And we have a great passage before us that will help us explore that question. And what we'll see is the nature of saving faith and the necessary consequences of saving faith and the power saving faith gives us for everyday life. It's nature, it's necessary consequences, and it's power for everyday life. All right? So first, the nature of saving faith. The first thing we have to understand about the nature of saving faith is this. It is a gift. It is a gift of God. Now, that's counterintuitive to some people because they understand faith as something that we do in order to receive faith. Faith is something I express in order to receive faith. After all, it's not, it's not God who has faith. It's I who have faith. And so in that sense, it's, it's my activity. While that's understandable, notice here, look at what it says in verse 1 in our passage today. Paul says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. He goes on to say more, but the basic verdict here is we were spiritually dead. We were dead in our sins. Now, would it make sense for Paul to to say that in one breath, you're spiritually dead? And then, in the next breath, say, but see, you can do something really spiritually healthy for yourself, and that is to put your whole trust in God. No, that wouldn't make any sense. That wouldn't be being spiritually dead. A physically dead person can't do anything to revive himself, so what can a spiritually dead person do to help himself spiritually? Nothing. Nothing. So you see in verse 5, Paul adds this. It's when we were still dead in our trespasses that God made us alive together with Christ because it's by grace that we've been saved. Now, I'm going to save the point about grace for next week when Pastor Kevin will be sharing with us more about that. For now, I want to just turn your attention to the fact that Paul says repeatedly we were dead spiritually in our sins, but it was God who revived us. It's not our faith that revived us. It's God who revived us. Now, let's look at where this faith comes from and what the nature of this faith is from verse 8 and on. Let's look at it in a bit more detail. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, notice the first thing that follows after the mention of being saved by grace through faith is, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And Paul adds, it's not a result of our works, in case you missed it, so that no one can boast. In fact, we are a total, complete outcome of God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. It's all God. It's all grace. Anything good that comes out of us, it's his work in us. Faith, in other words, is not something we conjure up in ourselves to earn God's salvation or receive God's salvation that way, but it's something God deposits into us by his grace. Meaning, it's not because we had faith 
that therefore God gives us his salvation. It's because he gave us his salvation that we can have faith. That's why he makes us spiritually alive first while we were still dead. And therefore we can respond in faith because of the work that he has done in our hearts. It's all grace. It's all God. And we have no boasting in ourselves whatsoever. As soon as, see, as soon as somebody starts saying, it's because I had faith that I'm saved. That's really saying, see, I had the good sense to receive from God what he only put on the table for me. He really gave me a good deal, and I had the good sense of recognizing it and taking it. And, and how will that translate into your evangelism? Your evangelism will essentially be, hey, my pagan friend or neighbor, you should really learn from me and have the good sense of putting your faith in Jesus like I did. I'm sorry, but that is not salvation by grace through faith. It's not receiving, it's not seeing faith as a gift from God. It's seeing faith as your work, as your performance. It's misconstruing the nature of faith entirely. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10 to the Jews who are not believing. You do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. Because my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now what does he mean by that? See, he's not saying you don't believe me so you don't get to be my sheep. That's not what he said. He says... You, don't, you cannot believe me because you're not my sheep. Because if you were my sheep, you would be able to hear me and follow me. In other words, you'd be able to believe in me. See, we see the same thing about the nature of faith here. It's all by grace. The identity of sheep comes first. And then the response of hearing and following by faith. The hearing doesn't make you sheep. It's being sheep that makes you hear. You hear the voice of the shepherd and you follow him, not to become sheep, but because you are sheep by grace. And this is one of those things that Reformed theologians have helped us understand over the centuries, that it is being regenerated, being born again, that leads us to have faith. It precedes faith. Being born again precedes faith. It's not having faith that makes you born again. It's being born again that gives you faith to respond. Think about the classic you know, picture of the altar call. You know, uh, after uh, hearing a great convicting message, uh, a man may feel the, the uh, conviction of stepping forward, right? responding to the invitation of the speaker to profess their faith and perhaps get baptized. When did this person, at what precise moment did this person become born again? Is it as soon as he professes with his lips that I believe in Jesus Christ? Or is it as soon as the water touches his head when he gets baptized? Or is it something prior to that? Paul would say his regeneration, him being born again, occurred long before this man decided to do anything. God had already cut this person to the heart and gave him a new heart that enables him to be convicted of his own sins 
And that is what leads him to respond in faith to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I want to be baptized. And that's exactly the order of events you see in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches to the Jews. They were first cut to the heart, and then they express faith saying, what must we do? It's not the other way around. It's not as, as if they, they professed their faith and got baptized, and then they were cut to the heart. The heart change occurred first. Again, you hear the voice of the shepherd, and you follow him, not to become sheep, but because by grace you've already be, been made sheep. That's the nature of faith. It's a gift from God, not a work that we perform. Now, there's some really important applications here for us. I'll just go over very quickly for the sake of time. For one, if, if faith is by nature a gift and not a work, See, now we can stop finally being spiritual perfectionists. Meaning you can stop evaluating just how good your faith is, how well you're exercising your faith, and instead turn your focus more to how good your Savior and your God is. Because it's not your faith that saves you. It's not your performance that saves you. It's grace. It's God's grace that saves you and gifts you faith. So reflect less about how your faith is doing. Reflect more on how God is doing. Is he still good? Is he still faithful? Is he still forgiving? Is he still steadfast in love? As one theologian said, for every one look at your faithlessness, for every one look at your sins, take ten looks at Christ and his faithfulness. This has a profound impact on the way we go about our everyday spiritual lives gives you the freedom to reflect more on God and less on yourself. Second, this has profound implications on how we view our children as parents. Ever since the, the Abrahamic covenant, which God calls the everlasting covenant, God has included infants in his covenantal family. There are only two kinds of people in this world, according to the Bible, those who are included in the kingdom and those who are not in the kingdom. And all throughout the Bible, what we see very clearly is that God includes believers' children as part of the kingdom. He doesn't exclude the children. We see Jesus himself laying hands on the, the infants in Luke chapter 18 and saying the kingdom belongs to even them. We see unborn babies being filled with the Holy Spirit, expressing their joy in the Lord. God has always included um, children in his kingdom, especially the believers' children, who cannot profess any faith. He includes them as members of his kingdom, and he gives parents the charge to raise them up as disciples, disciples who must observe God's commandments. And that is so consistent with what we're learning about the nature of faith. It's a gift. Grace comes before faith. It's not the profession of faith that brings us into grace. It's grace that brings us into profession of faith. And so we teach our children about grace until they are of age and they can profess their faith. We don't view them as people of the darkness. We include them in the kingdom of light and raise them as disciples of Christ. And we also place the sign of the disciple, which is baptism, on our children because we consider them as disciples. The nature of faith has profound uh, implications on how we view our faith and also the faith of our children. It's a gift, not our work. Second, there's a certain necessary consequence that must follow saving faith, if indeed we have saving faith. Think about what happens when a, uh, when a woman receives the gift of an engagement ring. No woman would simply receive that gift and walk away from the man, never to see him again, or behave as though she is still 
the same person that she was before. As soon as you receive this gift, you put on a whole new identity, right? There are necessary consequences to receiving that gift. The single you is no more, or becoming less and less of who you are. And now you live by this new identity as someone who's bound to another for the rest of your life. At least that's what, you say, what happens when you say, I do. So what happens when we receive the gift of faith from Jesus Christ? You essentially become wedded to him. The old you that lived apart from God is no more. The old self that lived for your own glory is no more. You become an entirely new creation in Jesus Christ, and now you have to live in that newness of life to the glory of God. It's as it says in Galatians 2.20, when you receive the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, you crucify your old self, and the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And, and notice what it also says in our passage today in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? Faith is not dormant. Faith isn't inactive. It has all kinds of works that come out of it that God has ordained for it to work out in our lives. It's God's work in us. And what is that work? It's primarily this work of turning away from our old selves and turning now entirely to our new Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is why all throughout the Gospels, the call to believe in Christ is it's either synonymous with or it's placed side by side with the call to repent. Faith and repentance are two words that represent the same heart attitude. You really cannot have one without the other. To turn to Christ is to turn away from the old. To walk away from your old self and towards your new identity in Christ. In order to truly turn to Christ, you must turn away from your sins. See, the question of am I truly saved is, is not that difficult to answer. It's by looking at your life of repentance. It's not looking at your baptism. It's not looking at what you profess verbally. What is functionally happening in your heart? In your heart of hearts, do you renounce your sins and desire Christ more than those things? And do you desire to obey him now and follow after him? And go back to that early example, early example you know, uh, of, of an engaged couple. One of the questions I ask in pre-engagement counseling is, are you really ready to say goodbye to your single life? Because you really cannot operate as if you're still single once you're married. Right? You, you surrender that to, to the, for the most part for, for the sake of your marriage. You're bound to someone else, right? Your time is not just your time. Your money is not just your money, um, right? You don't get to just dictate your life entirely the way you would like. You now have to merge into another lane and cooperate in heading in the same direction with another person. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to say goodbye to that old way, old way of life? Because if you don't, and if you're not very honest about this, you will enter into a very dysfunctional relationship, a dysfunctional relationship. And, and I want to ask you to be mindful and watchful of whether your current relationship with Christ is potentially a dysfunctional one, a dysfunctional one where you have said yes to him, but you've also said yes to your old self, where you've said yes to Jesus and living for his glory, but you've also said yes to living for your own success 
and your own recognition and your own ambition. You said yes to carrying your cross and following after Jesus, embracing the suffering that comes along the way, and also saying yes to the idol of comfort, saying yes to resting in Christ's salvation offered to you and how he has made your future secure by what he has done and also saying yes to money and the security that you feel from money. That's Inevitably, that will lead to a dysfunctional relationship. The necessary consequence of receiving the saving faith is you lay down these idols, you continue the work of turning away from your old self and follow more and more after Jesus and live according to his commands. The question is, is the Spirit of God convicting your heart of your sins and giving you that new desire to live in that way? Has the cross of Christ done the work of crucifying your old self and inviting you into the new? Are you experiencing this necessary consequence of saving faith, a life of repentance? And through that life of repentance, bearing fruit with more obedience. Here's the last point, and and this relates to the second. It's the power for everyday life. I want to submit this to you first. What is the most, the opposite thing, the, the most debilitating thing uh, in life and draining us the most and just the source of our motive to live every day? I want to submit to you that it, it really comes down to the matter of faith, whether your faith is more in yourself or whether your faith is more in God. When we take the path of, okay, I'm going to just choose to trust in myself and my abilities and take that other path uh, and pursue our self-made meaning, we fall under that illusion of having control and having to maintain control over everything in our lives. And it's so hard living that way because truth is, we don't have control. We don't have that much control at all. So naturally, we become fearful and anxious about tomorrow. We are still living for tomorrow, but with a whole lot of anxiety and fear. And that is no way to pursue a a life towards a tomorrow, a meaningful tomorrow. And this weighs us down, and it causes us to malfunction in all sorts of ways. As we see that we're losing control, we that's when we get angry, right? When I think my job is to control my children, and I can't control my children, that's when I get angry. When I think I should be able to control how my wife interacts with me and how my marriage goes, and I, I realize I can't, that's when I get angry. But at the heart of it, at the core of it, is this idea that I'm living under the control of my wisdom, control of my own abilities. It's faith in me, unbelief in God. It's also what makes us lazy because the illusion that laziness gives us is because we're not doing as much, we're better at controlling things. And that's an illusion. It's just you're distant from things. You're not in better control of things, but you run into less problems when you do less. We begin to malfunction when we think we're the ones in control. And it shows us we're on the wrong path. We're living by a wrong kind of faith, faith in oneself and unbelief in God. And that is ultimately debilitating. It sucks the power out of your life, the will to live a meaningful life. And there's a better path, and that's living by this saving faith in Jesus Christ that truly empowers you. How? Because grace empowers 
great, nothing is more empowering than grace. When grace controls you, it empowers you. It's where everything that lies before us, ahead of us, or even behind us, are all seen through the lens of God's sovereign grace, knowing that he's the author of our lives. He's intimately involved in every detail. He's the perfecter of our lives. It will make all things work together for the good by his grace. And so if you have this gift of faith in the grace of God, you have every good reason to strive towards obedience and repentance. Obedience and repentance, obedience and repentance. And you experience grace is what changes you little by little towards maturity. You, you're freed from that perfectionistic agenda of I got I to gotta get this right overnight. Grace covers you when you stumble and fail and you realize failure is not what I am. It's part of the process. Grace tells you that. So you can get out of bed the day after you failed. Faith is the means by which we tap into this grace every single day, every single hour. Because it is what empowers us. And it reminds us that no matter what of our identity as sheep, and cries out from within our hearts, Abba, Father, I have a heavenly Father who will never leave me nor forsake me. Grace empowers us. Trusting in God's control by his sovereign grace empowers us. Did you know that the Bible calls Jesus uh, the wonderful counselor? You see, uh, when, you, when you sit down with a uh, secular counselor or a therapist uh, and they sit down with you, or let's say with a married couple, they can tell you things like, here are, here are three steps to, to improve your communication with one another. Uh, here's how you can practice speaking in a better tone, or here's how you can create more positive experiences for one another. But what they can never give you, what they can never give you is the drive, the power to follow through with those things. They can, in other words, give you the law, but not the grace to move towards the law. They can give you the instructions and the commands, but not the will to obey those instructions and commands. Jesus gives us that. And that makes him our wonderful counselor. He doesn't just give us commands. He gives us the will to obey his commands. And he empowers us by his grace. He doesn't just point us to our sins. He points us to the cross where our sins are dealt with. Where he says, your sins are called out but also forgiven and you are loved. And that, again, empowers us to live in faith, live in obedience and repentance as we grow more and more into his image. This wonderful counselor is with you. He's always with you. And he's always speaking to you through his word. He's the only counselor who says, I have diagnosed what it is that is hurting you. I have diagnosed what it is that's causing you to be anxious and fearful for tomorrow. Now let me take that from you and die for you so you may live. He's the only counselor who says that. So go to him. Go to him today. And remain in him every day. How? Through the gift that he's given you. Saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel uh, of grace and not only the content of that message, not only that good news, but the faith to receive that good news, the faith to move towards that good news. God, we confess um, on our own, we're simply uh, dead in our sins. We're dead in our tracks. Uh, We cannot advance. We cannot help ourselves. But we thank you that you came to us when we were utterly helpless. And there are those of us who certainly feel that way today. Uh, We feel that our spiritual lives have plateaued. We feel that we're not advancing forward. And Lord, we confess a big part of that is because we've looked more to our performance. We've looked more to how well am I doing. Not enough at the cross and what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished, what he has finished for us. Lord, take our eyes off of ourselves. Fix our eyes on the cross. Fix our eyes on Jesus. May we consider him. May we turn our thoughts towards him. And as we do so, help us to see even our lives reflected in that grace under that control of him who loved us and gave himself for us. We entrust our thoughts to you. Um, Pray that it would be controlled by your love and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.